called Girl X, and I'm going to sort of pass over to you to take Thanks, over. Thanks, Julia. Hi, everyone. I hope you can hear me. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. If, if you lose me, can you wave or sort of make a noise? Um, okay, so I'll just read a little bit from the opening of my next book. It's, um, I find it hard to find a segment that's short that sort of really works as a standalone piece. So this ends rather abruptly, but it's the beginning of um, my next book. And then after that, I'll introduce Sarah, who will read, and then I'll introduce Julia. In his essay, The Unwritable, Mark Doty reflects on having been in his early adulthood a masked man, married to a woman, Ruth, and sleeping secretly with men. Married young, he writes, one night I came home late from some place or another, and there was a guy hanging out under a streetlight in front of a bar down the block, a place called The Graduate. I knew it was a gay bar, but just seeing this boy, a hundred yards away perhaps, nobody would have had to tell me. Even this far away, his school letter jacket was glowing with desire. He was facing in my direction, and we were sending some beam to one another, entirely undetectable, by any means other than the human body, his white-sleeved jacket, a sweet, hungry icon. I was, about, I was 18 and alive with longing, and I turned and went into the house and lay down beside my sleeping wife. Doty's essay is about moving from that subterfuge to freedom, and it's also about the body and bodily encounters as incommunicable vehicles of transformation, as doors, hinges into lives more fully lived. But it's also about the difficulty of writing about and even understanding one's own sexual life, of understanding oneself. Doty's previous confused life seems to him, he says, gothic, ridiculous. To narrate those years seems inevitably to accuse Ruth and to invite me to offer justifications for my own foolishness in marrying her. We did what we did. How we make decisions is often obscure, even or perhaps especially to ourselves. We may narrate ourselves to self and other, but knowledge takes time, and it's often retrospective. Made in Chelsea is a TV series set in London's Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea. It follows rich kids with no need of jobs, spending their days and nights poring over their romantic entanglements in shops, bars and restaurants, all of which are ostentatiously named. The show is one large product placement for the commerce of the borough. They talk over designer chocolates and bespoke suits. Occasionally, one of them opens a boutique. They host extravagant parties. There's a lot of champagne quaffed by girls holding their heads quite still so as not to disturb their hairdos. Much of the action consists in people bumping into one another on smart streets or meeting for champagne breakfasts to recount recent events to one another, detailing the flirtations and slights and tantrums, deciding whose side they're on. We also see set pieces, the events themselves, where propositions are made, harsh words are spoken, and people storm stiffly, dramatically out of rooms as they imagine actors in films might. They're trying to act like actors. This is because Made in Chelsea is, in its own words, constructed reality. The actors are not actors. There's no substantial writing. But there are signposts, roads to be taken, outcomes to be brought about. The effect is intensely self-conscious, oddly transfixing. Beautiful young things move across the screen like shadowy puppets, 
fairy tale symbols, unsure of their own agency. And yet they talk and act as if they already know everything, and that's because they do. When we do see events unfold in so-called real time, an argument at a party, an awkward date, we're given as much synchronous narration about what we're seeing as we're given anything to see. Action is itself narrated, which thereby makes it narrative. Action moves along by its own constant narration. So an awkward date consists significantly of the parties stating their awkwardness. Well, this is awkward. Yes, it's awkward. A fun night out consists of people shouting over club music or slinkily slurring along with a spa soundtrack to tell each other that this is great fun. This is a great night. We're having such fun. The excessive, endless footage of girls and boys narrating the current stilted events or recounting the last night's engineered adventures, it was such an awkward date. We made up and had such fun. Function like the over-narrated awkward events themselves to tell us what's happening, as if without this narration it might not have happened at all. The characters give instructions to us, the viewers, on how to read what we see. They're reading us the audiobook, the plot summarising surtitles. They're the Greek chorus to themselves. We are blind, they tell us what to see. There's something weirdly true to life about Made in Chelsea, that reality is constructed, that meaning is acquired through narration, but not true to life as it is lived in the moment. In the moment, it can be hard to know what's going on. Is this conversation antagonistic or flirtatious? Is this a date or just a lunch? Are we friends or do we hate each other's guts? Are we having an argument or have we just made a declaration of love? It's over time that we work out or place the narrative over what unfolds confusingly too fast in the moment. Made in Chelsea speeds up this process of narration and understanding. It hasn't got time for the slow arc, the agonising unfolding of insight. It's not a fucking novel. It propels itself along by welding the narration very closely to the action. Before we can really see anything, we're told what it is. All is interpretation, all is retrospective. It's already looking back before the moment is even over. There is no gap between action and story. In Made in Chelsea, there's no blankness, no indeterminacy. The show imposes meaning on itself constantly. Nothing is not understood, nothing is not known. And yet in its frantic assertion of meaning, its confident, bullish interpretation of itself, the yawning chasm of confusion is all the more anxiously felt. Hilda Doolittle, in her account of her time on Freud's couch, writes that, I found I was not so shy. I would deliberately assemble all the sorry memories in my effort to get at the truth. But Freud says to her, we never know what's important or what is unimportant until after. We must be impartial, see fair play to ourselves. Thank you. Thank you. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Sarah Howe, poet and academic and scholar and all-round brilliant person. Um, her collection of poems, Loop of Jade, there were some around, I think, was published in 2015 by Chateau. And um, she won the T.S. Eliot Prize and the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award. I think, interestingly, perhaps unusually for a poet to win that award. It doesn't happen so much. Yeah, so that might be something we can touch on. Um, 
shortlisted for the Seamus Heaney Centre Poetry Prize and the Ford Prize for the Best First Collection. Um, and she is currently at UCL as a Lever Hume Research Fellow and will be, can I, can I say that, can I announce it? Will be uh, starting um, a job in creative writing at King's College next year. So we're delighted to have her with us and she's going to read to us. Oh, cool. Um, thank you so much, uh, Catherine, for that introduction and to you and Julia, thanks for inviting me here. It's, uh, it's exciting to be sharing um, this little table to talk about these subjects um, from the perspective of a poet. Um, not least because I'm one uh, who's very interested in these questions um, of truth-telling, um, non-fiction, uh, memoir. Um, and so I thought I would read to you a few snippets from the title poem of my book, Loop of Jade, which does actually mostly unfold in the form of prose fragments. Um, those fragments are sort of interspersed with uh, very disorientating um, little haiku-like um, tranches of verse, though I, I, I probably won't read them today because they uh, deliberately throw you around and you, you sort of can only really appreciate or start to appreciate what's going on um, on a second reading, perhaps. Um, but this poem is in the form of fragments because that's the way that the story it tells came to me um, it pieces together uh, some facts of my mother's early life that didn't actually become apparent to me until my 20s in this nocturnal storytelling late night um, scenario that, that I describe at the start here. My mum was born in Guangdong province in China in 1948. Um, which, as you probably know, was quite a tumultuous time in Chinese politics. Um, the People's Republic was founded the next year when uh, the communists came to power. Um, for whatever reason, she was abandoned by her birth family and tenuously adopted by a woman who was probably too poor to adopt her, actually. But they fled together, she, um, a baby in arms, across the water to Hong Kong Island, which being then still a British colony was a relative point of stability in this falling apart world. Um, so I'll read you, as I said, some prose snippets, but I think I will read the very last section too, which shifts back into verse, and I wonder if you'll be able to hear the difference. Um, the loop of jade happens to be this one, actually, if that helps, helps you to visualise things. Loop of Jade. When the television has stayed on too long, the channels ended, and all the downstairs lights switched off but one, sometimes, rarely, my mother will, be, will begin to talk without prelude or warning about her growing up. Then her words feel pulled up from a dark and unreflective well, willed and not willed. It isn't that this, same, that this tacit contract is not tinged by our same daily fumblings, but when the men are asleep, I think she believes it's someone else's turn to listen. Once she spoke of her horror as a very small child of the communal kitchen in their low-rise tenement. Half outdoors in that muggy climate, it ran across the whole row, a corridor or terrace. 
This space, aside from housing a blackened static wok the size of a Western baby's bath, was also a latrine. I'm squatting barefoot over the cracked tile trench and trying not to breathe. How despite themselves, her eyes would follow to the nearby drain as it sprouted. Here she giggles, shivers, the glistening bodies of cockroaches like obscene sucked sweets. I see them, the colour of rust or shit, hitching up from the crusted grill on agile legs, things scuttling from some dank subterranean chamber of the head. Another time, she tells of being made in the bucket room at the place she always calls a school, to wash her hair with a green detergent meant for scouring floors, shaken from a cardboard tube. Unconscious fingers reach towards her scalp. I do not look for the candied rose petal patches there as long as I remember, as of mange or burns, that tell why, before leaving her room, she will so carefully layer and arrange her lovely black hair. Her longest and most empty pause, I've learned, comes before the word mother, as in my mother. She could speak Shanghainese. This, one of her trademark non sequiturs, at the table the family would laugh, arrived while scraping off dinner plates several months after a trip of mine to Shanghai. It's as though she's been conducting the conversation in her head for some time and decides disconcertingly to include you. Or one Christmas, tucking the cooled mince pies into kitchen paper. I sometimes think she wasn't very reliable, my mother. What she told me, I don't know how much I can believe. In her mouth, that noun worried at me for I would never naturally use it myself, mother, except at an immigration office, perhaps, to total strangers, or inside the boundaries of a poem. She places it in the room's still air with a kind of resolve, and yet a sense it's not quite right, a mistranslation, like watching her wade one dredged step at a time out into a wide grey strait, Myself, a waving spot, unseen on the furthest shore. It thuds into my chest, this pendant ring of milky jade. I wear it strong on an old watch chain, meant for a baby's bracelet. Into its smooth circlet, I can just fit a quincunx five fingertips. Cool on my palm it rests, the cynical eye on a butterfly's wing. When I was born, she took it across to Wong Kai Sing, my mother's mother, to have it blessed. I saw that place, its joss stick incensed mist, 
the fortune-casting herd, their fluttering tree-tied pleas, only later, as a tourist. As for the jade, I never wore or even saw it then. The logic runs like this. If baby falls, the loop of stone, a sacrifice, will shatter in her place. Painfully knelt on the altar step, did the old woman shake out a sheath of red-tipped sticks and pick one to entreat my fate. And if I break it now, will I be saved? <laughs> Many of you know her very well, I think. She um, runs the creative writing MA and set it up, I think, originally. Founder of. Um, she's the author, author of three novels, most recently The Dark Light, um, and three volumes of short stories. And she is writing a new non-fiction book about Tempelhof um, Airfield in Berlin. And I think that's it. Going to be reading. Uh, no, I'm actually going to be reading oh. from. Sorry, no, I'm, just going to, I'm just going to read a very short extract from uh, an essay about Berlin. Uh, I'm going to read about um, the nightclub Bergheim, which some of you may have heard of, uh, which I have been to in Berlin, uh, where you have to queue and worry about whether or not you get in. Anyway, I'm going to save you the tension and say, well, I did get in, and just read a very short extract from what happened when I was there. The sound has moved up a gear. Len Faki has changed the beat from a minimal military rhythm to something more complex. He drops a trippy break, a kind of backward synthesizer, and the crowd cheers, the dancing accelerates. DJ sets at Bergheim can last for five, six hours. The DJs build with the crowd a sound journey, slower, faster, louder, softer. A good DJ can sense the energy of the crowd and pushes the sound to control the experience. Now I can sense the music as shapes around my body. I finish my drink and push through the crowd into the middle of the dance floor, relax and give my body to the beat, and the heat rises. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine died from an inoperable brain tumour. For weeks, I've carried a heavy weight of grief, a sense of life as fragile, unreal. I held his warm hand, hours before they switched off the life support, the machines that kept him alive, beeping their measurements into the cold hospital. My friend was queer, always at right angles to everything, never quite fitting in. He found in Berlin a home of sorts, although everything for him was always tenuous. He was an artist, open, oversensitive, unable to hold down a job, too argumentative, too aware of the hypocrisy that underpins most labour, the centre would never hold. To some, he might be marginal, but he was always a survivor, and 50 is no age to die. There was still so much he had to do, to offer, and I'm here for him too, to do something with the sadness that I've been carrying in my body. It's not lost on me that the persistent beeping in this track sounds like one of his machines. He was brain dead by the time I saw him. 
yet his body was warm, his skin glowing, the life support keeping his body alive, even while he was dead. The scans showed a black mass where his brain activity should have been. Where did he go? I look into the crowd and for a heart-stopping second think I can see him coming towards me with his boyish smile, stories of how brilliantly he was getting on with the book that we both knew he wasn't writing. His many kindnesses, phrases, gestures, noises come back to me, him saying, I'll hate him till the day I die, or over my dead body. Now these commonplaces seem like prophecies. I let myself into the rhythm and the limbs move of their own accord. I don't control it. I'm not making any rehearsed moves, just letting my nervous system respond to the beat. My arms and legs and torso move as if connected to the sound, bypassing consciousness. At some point I pass through the mirror into this uncanny techno place. I am not aware of myself. I am at once all body and nobody. I am out of time, out of language, my mind all sensation. The sound makes shapes, red, green, purple, which become like a physical building that the beat starts to build around me. The music has a kind of architecture which I can see in my mind's eye. At this saturation, the sound creates its own spatial awareness, its own metaphysical structures. In this place, I am connected to something bigger than me, a place outside of the ego. I am at once nobody at all and all body. The split parts of me are, for these few moments, suddenly whole. On an atomic level, my physicality is being changed by the pressure waves coming from the speakers, from the movement of all the other humans around me. I'm on the dance floor and above it at the same time. Even though I'm surrounded by people, I'm solitary. I'm not even in a club on a dance floor, but in some other space and time entirely. I am entering the trance. Björk describes it so. I had been away from Iceland for over a year, and when I returned for New Year, I stayed on top of a mountain. I went for a walk on my own, and I saw the ice was thawing in the lava fields. All I could hear was the cackle of the ice, echoing over hundreds of square miles. It was pitch black. The northern lights were swirling around, and just below them was a layer of thick cloud. I could see the lights from all the towns in my childhood, mirrored in the reflection of these clouds, with the lava fields cackling below. It was really techno. <laughs> Thanks, Julia. Thank you both. Um, so I thought we would start by sort of thinking a little bit about this term, non-fiction, that is such a ridiculously large term. Um, and I don't know if some of you have seen in The, the Guardian or The Observer or something, uh, Robert McCrum has this series at the moment called you know, The 100 Best Books of Non-Fiction. Um, and I find it very striking in that that I think his definition, I mean, you know, in any definition, definition is going to be wrong and annoying, but his definition is, um, I think, anything that isn't a novel, which I think is a very common way of understanding non-fiction, perhaps particularly (coughs) in the UK. Um, And so I suppose, you know, within within that, I mean, so he's including things like um, Joan Didion, 
Richard Dawkins, um, books like you know How to Win Friends and Influence People. I mean, it's mm. it's Roger Thesaurus. You know, it's completely sprawling. It's anything that isn't fiction, and it also includes poetry. So he's included Ariel um, by Sylvia Plath. And so obviously, you know, we, we can't have a conversation about that because that would be absurd. It's too big. Um, and in a sense, I think probably what we're all more interested in is this thing that gets called literary nonfiction or creative nonfiction, for good or for ill. Um, and so I suppose the kind of question I want to start with is we call this the rise of nonfiction. Um, is, are we in a rise of nonfiction? I mean, I think there are really interesting issues there to do with you know, place and time and whether there is some kind of resurgence that's happening or whether that's a kind of contingent sort of perception based on, you know, the usual things, the marketing trends of, of the publishing industry. So I don't know if either of you have any thoughts about this particular moment. Were we right to call this the rise of nonfiction? I think I've got two... Yeah, I'll, I'll start and then I've, I've got two things I wanted to say in relation to that. I think the first thing, it's the cultural context. I think it's worth thinking about why we're asking this question now, perhaps to take it back. Um, and that's influencing both what's being written and also what's being read. And firstly, I think that a lot of the character-driven narratives are moving onto TV. So the stuff that we might consider to have been the big social novels are now in Breaking Bad and House of Cards and these long sort of stories where a character gets developed over a long period of time are not perhaps happening in a novel in the same way that they used to. So that would be my first observation. And the second is I do think that in an age of sort of post-truth or post-fact, perhaps, and I think probably we're going to come back to this, where we're being encouraged to compete with each other for resources and where there is no such thing as society discussed, um, <laughs> we're increasingly atomised from each other. And I do feel like we live inside that Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. And I wonder whether or not as a response to that somehow one of the few ways that we have of resisting that idea is to just speak from our own subjective position that all we can genuinely know is the ground underneath our feet. And just as an example of that, I would say Olivia Lang's book, A Lonely City, I know is now on the bookshelves of many of the young people I know because it speaks to them of a loneliness that they are encountering in their contemporary lives that they felt very ashamed of. And then they're reading this book, and she's talking very explicitly about her own loneliness and her own relation to it in relationship to New York. And they're finding in that book a, a solidarity and someone who is speaking for something that perhaps, at the moment, fictions aren't quite able to address. So those would be my two sort of opening thoughts. I don't know what you think about that. Um, I guess in response to this question of whether something is happening at this moment, a phenomenon that particularly interests me as a poet is um, this one of poets who turn to uh, literary non-fiction, or at least to prose, um, who, who turn to writing in this mode where this question, is this a poem, what is this, is this prose, um, is this a lyric essay? What label can we can we give this? Do we need to give this? Is one that very much <coughs> needs to be put to one side with books like Claudia Rankine's Citizen, uh, Maggie Nelson's Argonauts, mm. um, or well, actually, so much of the recent Grey Wolf 
list um, uh, you could cite in this regard. Um, also, uh, a poet like Ben Lerner, who um, has turned uh, to write these um, hybrid, uh, meta, self-reflexive um, novels, uh, two of them so far, uh, which suck into their orbit uh, previously published stories, bits of art criticism, pieces of poetry critique, uh, which, which uh, get integrated into their fabric. And I suppose I'm interested in the way that what seems to link all of these writers, um, or, or at least one aspect of um, what links them, is an interest in the hybrid, the neither one nor the other, that this space seems to be one that in its generic fluidity, its resistance to categorization, lets them speak about subject matter that is very interested in um, this question of how we erode uh, categories, reinterrogate them, whether that's queerness and gender fluidity and parenthood in, in Maggie Nelson's um, work, or race in the work of, say, Barney Kapil, Barney Capildeo, my own work, um, I, I think it was only after I'd finished Loop of Jade, actually, that I started to wonder if a reason I was so drawn to this thing, which I guess I'd been calling in my own head the prose poem, was because, as a mixed-race person, I was instinctively intrigued by this form which is, is uh, very consciously on the threshold of, of two worlds. Um, and I, I wonder if, if this space this fertile open space um, is, is one that poets are flooding in to fill because there's been a vacuum there before. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that, I mean, certainly those kind of hybrid, you know, cr critical, lyrical, non-fiction books, however one wants to describe them, they, they've been discussed quite a lot in terms of their relationship to poetry, partly because a lot of them are written by people who've published as poets initially and then written in prose. Um, but what I find quite interesting is that in the things that I've read about nonfiction, I feel like the conversation tends to still pivot around nonfiction's relationship either to the novel or to poetry. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the, I mean, one, one definition of nonfiction that I find really is the idea that you know, non-fiction is trying to convey information but borrowing techniques from the novel. Mm. <laughs> that's a, you know, that's trotted out quite a lot, um, which I think is kind of problematic partly because it totally assumes the primacy of the novel and assumes that um, you know, one has to borrow techniques from fiction in order to accomplish anything. Um, and, but similarly, the kind of the desire to explain some of these hybrid forms in relation to poetry is, I mean, I think is right, but I think there's something that gets left out, which is actually a, a different kind of lineage for some of the you know, contemporary nonfiction, which is a far more philosophical tradition. Mm. And that's a tradition that you know spans from, well, it's also a theological tradition. It spans from St. Augustine, mm. and it spans from Montaigne um, and Descartes and you know later Roland Barthes. I mean, and it's no accident perhaps that those are French names. Um, but there's a you know there's a kind of meditative sort of mind moving through the world that's correlating various um, various kinds of 
data, to use a totally inappropriate term, to explore an argument, part of which is, you know, what is at stake is about the relationship of the self to the world. And so I see a lot of the contemporary, I mean, my work included, I mean, even, you know, Leslie Jameson to some extent, or Rebecca Solnit, um, but certainly, you know, Ben Lerner and Rachel Cusk and Claudia Rankin, I mean, some of these writers, I think, can be seen in a philosophical tradition, but it's one that doesn't, I think, get talked about as much. Certainly not in, I think, the kind of English-speaking literary culture, perhaps. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a Ben Lerner quote, actually, that, that I think is really interesting in this regard, about, you know, partly about the way a lot of us, I think, are used to being asked this question of, you know, what, what is it you write, what, what genre does it fall into, and it always kind of induces these paroxysms of kind of agony and frustration and... Um, you know, one can talk for hours about it, even though it's actually kind of quite boring, probably. But Ben Lerner in 1004 says this really interesting thing. He says, part of what I loved about poetry was how the distinction between fiction and non-fiction didn't obtain, how the correspondence between the text and the world was less important than the intensities of the poem itself, what possibilities of feeling are opened up in the present tense of reading. And so he's talking in relation to poetry, but it seems to me that captures something about the kind of sensibility that, you know, writers as kind of diverse, I think, in their kind of style as, like, Hilton Owls and Jenny Offill, who's sort of writing fiction. Is it fiction? Is it non-fiction? You know, all those writers are, are more interested in what is made possible through the particular form and through the particular object rather than the narrative structure, perhaps, of of whatever it is they happen to be writing. Um. I think that I, mm -hmm. I, I, that's <laughs> so, so much <laughs> that I want to pay tribute to and, and um, expand on there, Catherine. I think you're absolutely right about this question of uh, lineage, um, mm. and maybe I could come on to that in a sec, but um, I was just struck when you reread read, um, the learner quotation there about, um, I was struck by the idea of the present tense of writing mm. and what that yes. encounter in yes, time yes, is. Yes, and yes, it yes. reminded me of um, the emphasis on real time in your own <laughs> exposition of Made in Chelsea and that, that beautiful idea of what, what is the presentness of this commenting mm. on the awkwardness of the now. Um, and it, actually when you were um, reading that section of your piece, I... I thought of this trope um, that goes back to the epistolary novel, uh, the birth of the novel in the 18th century, this idea that uh, writing the letter has this present tense immediacy, mm. which becomes almost parodiable. So in, uh, in Pamela, this idea that she might mm. go round the corner to, to scribble this letter in, round the cupboard, in, when parody in Shamala becomes the idea, I am writing this letter to you from the back of my horse. Yeah. You know, this, <laughs> yeah. um, this, this present now, this um, hurried into length quality, of this messiness, which is a sort of um, uh, an indicator of truth. Uh, because because there isn't time for polish, uh, which is is a is a trope that goes back to the very foundations of the novel. Um, but I think that you're right that nonfiction, uh, in that very privative that that non um, prefix, uh, there's a there's a real oddity to its definition, isn't there? Um, why should it be uh, defined in relation to fiction, um, to the making? 
and the world making, which is fiction. Yes. Um, and, and so I think you're absolutely right to draw attention to um, Augustine, Montaigne, Rousseau, um, the tradition uh, which we might define on the one hand via Montaigne as, as that of the essay, mm -hmm. and the relation of that to the to accounting for the movement of the mind, of the self in the world, um, and the provisionality, the um, quicksilverness of that. But also, really interesting, I, I suppose um, I hadn't really thought about this in relation to what we were going to be talking today, uh, but another generic marker we should raise, of course, is the confession, that as you say, this is a religious oh, yeah. uh, confessional tradition going back to Augustine, but the, the origins, the very origins of autobiography in English are as a religious, uh, spiritual genre in the uh, late 16th, early 17th centuries. Um, the, this Puritan self-examination of turning your focus inwards onto the soul. But the paradox of that is that this form of writing which um, gives us the first uh, examination, candid examination of the self um, in uh, English language literature um, is, is from the Puritan perspective not actually to do with examining the self as an individual at all. It's all in the service of um, the self being part of this larger community. So um, that, that's a really interesting thing to draw attention to in terms of that line of inheritance. I also think the today. thing about confession is quite gendered because I think that quite often... Uh, women write memoirs and then they're listed as confessionals. I know that the Amy Littrop book, The Outrun, is a kind of good example of a book which in its reception was listed as something which was confessional, even though it was because she was speaking about her drug addiction. And that there is some kind of, particularly with that kind of book, uh, a sort of almost a preordained structure of here's my abjection, here's my terrible situation, and this is how I rose up and rose above it. Uh, which does also go back to Augustine, I know, but, it's, but it seems to me that in the way that it's received in the wider culture can sometimes be incredibly gendered. Mm -hmm. So uh, someone like Nausgaard, who talks very much about his own objection, is still writing memoir, not confession. It's never quite couched in the same kind of way. Yeah, but also his books do get classified as fiction. The back yes. of, the, of the editions I have say fiction, and their um, bookshops often file them as fiction, which is very interesting, because he, he doesn't describe his work as fiction no. at all. I mean, there's an argument about what, you know, how can he remember those things, six, yes, yes, six yes, yes, yes. his life in such detail, but he describes them as straightforward. But he, the, other, the other thing I also think is interesting about him is that, to my mind, he shows what Freud says, that creativity is a kind of defence mechanism, a sort of way of turning your fantasies into socially acceptable creations instead of symptoms. And that he says he had to write these books, mm -hmm. and he sat down to write them, and suddenly three thousand pages later, he was still trying to get his struggle down on, on the page. Mm -hmm. And that there's a sort of interesting, particularly in this kind of arena of creative nonfiction, where sometimes I feel that the author has written them out as a kind of psychic necessity to a survival, uh, in order to survive, in order to somehow. Uh, for, for, for me, with Nausgaard particularly, I think that comes across very, very strongly when I read the mm -hmm. work. But it's his own survival that's at stake. It's my struggle. That, that yeah, and I think I mean this issue of you know the I that's in this kind of writing, and I'm you know I'm struck by it in both of the sections that you both read. Um, I think it's a, it's such an interesting one. 
And I, I, sort of, I want to ask you about this, Sarah, in relation to poetry, because mm. so you know, there's a lot of debate and kind of controversy about, for instance, NASCAR, about you know, confessional writing. There's an, this article that came out last year, and there are many versions of this by Jason Guriel saying, "I don't care about your called I don't care about your life. Why critics need to stop getting personal in their essays?" That's a kind of you know, it's a, it's a sort of um, you know, version of an argument, a sort of, it's a sort of diatribe against, <coughs> you know, what is now seen as this kind of tendency to, to personalise everything, that every kind of political argument that has to be made or, or every kind of investigative piece of writing that would previously have been reporting or previously have been an essay is now kind of flooded and infected with, you know, this generation of writers who have to kind of spread themselves messily all over their writing. Um, you can tell what I think about this argument from my tone of voice. Um, but what I think, what I'm quite intrigued by is that um, that kind of argument and that discussion about, you know, are, are there too many memoirs? Is there too much first-person writing? Tends to happen um, predominantly in relation to non-fiction, to prose writing. And obviously there is a history and a debate about different kinds of poetry and confessional poetry that, you know, tends to be a label attached to writers like Anne Sexton or Sylvia Plath. But it seems to me, and I may be wrong in this, and I'd love to hear what you think about it, it seems to me that that question of the, of the kind of I, the kind of pronoun, the sort of persona that the writer is creating in poetry is, is not as contested to the extent that it is, it's more part of the fabric of what we expect from poetry, that it is, that it is in this kind of personal spoken, experienced voice, that in fact if we read poems that don't have that sort of sense of a persona that can, whether accurately or not, be mapped on to the poet, him or herself, we would be kind of confused by the poetry that didn't already have that possibility in it. And I'm curious about that, sort of that separation of what, what I think is a separation about that conversation between poetry and prose, but I may be completely wrong about that. Um, I, I, I'd like to hear your answers to this question too. So I, I don't think it's just to do with poetry. Poet, but but I guess I, it was, I, I could give the um, literary critics answer to this. Um, but actually I've been struggling with my own personal answer to this question because when it came to... Um, answering various interview-typed questions, which um, I agonised far too long about, um, asking me about th this very matter of, of whether the I in Luke of Jade is, is me or is me, straightforwardly me. Um, I, my reflex reaction um, was to trot out the intentional and autobiographical fallacy. Right. It's most classic uh, instantiation. And so my, uh, what immediately came out of my, um, out of my fingertips, as it were, uh, was this idea that uh, there's always distance between the, <laughs> the, the eye. Don't make the mistake um, of um, first-year poetry students encountering a poem and naively... Uh, identifying it with your done or your Wyatt or whatever. Um, it's always a persona. Uh, and, and then after writing a couple of paragraphs of this, I sort of thought, oh, um, this isn't quite an adequate account of what is going on here. Um, 
I think it's certainly true that I do make a play of personae in my work. I'm, I'm not sure that the reader would come to know me directly um, from the poems per se. It's, I'm perhaps a space at, at the centre that everything else moves around, which is a blank. Um, and I'm not sure that the eye is always a stable one in the poems either. But the fact is that um, there is a frisson to holding up this object as a sort of talisman of this all happened. Mm -hmm. uh, that I, I do, in that book, describe um, real events and real people, uh, my mother most of all. Um, so the, the questions, the aesthetic and eventually ethical questions I was grappling with um, actually became less about the I I was speaking in and the way that the poems represented her and the relationship between the storytelling I and the story which is mostly told, which is, is that of my mum. Mm -hmm. um, and that came to a head when I finally realised that it was getting quite late in the day and I really needed to show these poems to her because um, I was one day going to publish them. And that was quite a strange experience. Um, I, I printed out um, the poems that I had for her and gave them to her and had one of these very elliptical conversations that's maybe characteristic of many families, not just Chinese families. Uh, the first thing she said to me was, um, I'm very impressed that you've managed to print it on both sides of the paper. <laughs> <laughs> She eventually said something which I found very interesting, which was, um, it's a bit like watching a film of your life mm. that maybe the contour of the events and the plot is right, but it's as if everybody you knew, including yourself, um, is being played by actors. Mm. Um, and I think that's the space mm -hmm. for... Um, latitude <coughs> making up that I can't, I necessarily can't enter her head however detailed an account she might give me. Um, and the book is quite free about making mistakes and uh, mm -hmm. the, the unreliability of memory in these respects. And I think that does all go back to this question of how securely rooted is this I, mm. um, that even in that extract I read, the poems are constantly sort of undercutting themselves, saying how much of this can I believe, you know? Yeah. But I'm so glad that, and I want to ask you how this works in your writing, Julia, as well. But I'm really glad that you mentioned that process of sort of, of, of performing that narrative of, you know, um, that, you know, the line about the persona and the, the distance, because I'm, I'm very intrigued by that response that a lot of different kind of writers have, myself included. But I notice it a lot with novelists, so novelists who are so insistent, too insistent, that their novels are not autobiographical. And I, I understand that insistence. It comes partly from you know, being annoyed by journalists constantly asking you, so is this about your life? But it also comes, I think, from the fact that memoir or autobiography or first-person writing, whatever you want to call it, has a different kind of status. And there's, a, there's some kind of sort of residual stain attached to writing about the South that novelists feel they have to keep at bay. Mm. And I feel it in my writing too, which I describe as first-person prose or first-person non-fiction, and that is very much based 
on my experiences and I've woven or my persona or me or you know whatever that difference is is woven throughout the whole text but I too feel the need to kind of emphasize that it's me and not me and I think that that is sort of performing a kind of defensive function that is partly to do with the literary culture and how those different kind of forms of writing are seen. Do you think that it's particular to this to, to the UK because I don't see that that's necessarily a question that is the French or the Spanish particularly also Fixian is a staple of a particular kind of literary yeah. culture that it's to do with the conservatism of British literary culture. And do you think it's also to do with the perception of ease that if a fiction writer um, commits the sin of the autobiographical first novel that that's necessarily an apprenticeship because that is lesser, uh, that's what they write on their way to working out how to use the imagination properly as it were. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I sort of feel a bit defensive about that somehow because I think that we're still doing what Ian Forster said, which is only connect. Everything I think that I do when I write non-fiction is to try and synthesise all kinds of thoughts, um, my experience, all kinds of sort of rhetorical devices in order to get to some kind of clarity of thought, which is also what I do when I write fiction. I don't really see that there's that much of a difference. There's just a different persona at work in the... Mm. There's a different voice, and definitely with the Burkhine essay, for example, I've been to that place maybe five times, and that was the the the, the, the essay is a description of one time, and it's a synthesis of all of those five times. Mm. And to have tried to write it as oh well, when I went this time, this happened, it would have just made the essay incredibly messy. Mm. So I had to synthesise everything, yeah, otherwise you'd got bored of it. There's fiction in all writing. All, all language involves deceit, as Calvinus says. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, it's a Vivian it, um, Gornick has a wonderful kind of take on this in her book The Situation and the Story where she talks about the persona of, of good non-fiction writing including her own amazing memoir Fierce Attachments that is one of the best books I've ever read mm. she talks about the p- constructing like the hard hard work of constructing a persona that she said in her case when, when she discovered it it was like discovering it discovering the instrument of my illumination and she talks really beautifully about the encounter with this person that's her and that's not her, and who is far more insightful, far more generous, far more kind of acute and articulate than she in her ordinary life could ever be. And so the idea that in the, you know in this kind of writing you're creating a better version yes. of yourself that is you know yeah. far, far less messy, far less boring than, than one's kind of, but it's sort of ordinary it's self. True, but we have to use artfulness, otherwise it would just be sort of splurgy diary entries. But I wanted to go back to this thing about poetry and say that from my experience, again, I've write, written, written some narrative poems about my childhood, and I read at this poetry event, and a male poet came up to me afterwards and dismissed me for writing narrative poems and said that that wasn't proper poetry. And looked at me as if I'd just trodden in dog shit. And I think there's an awful lot of bullcrap in the world of poetry. And it seems to me that you had quite an interesting response when Loop of Jade was published. That there is a sort of sense that proper things, proper poetry, proper fiction, is policed somehow by a group of mansplaining and uh, apologists in the higher echelons of poetry world. And I take great delight in telling us what poetry is and is not. And I guess I take a kind of extreme delight in ignoring that, but I also wondered whether or not you felt that you had to either fight against that or worry about that, or do you worry about that? Um, l- latterly, I, I suppose, uh, I, I, 
after some of those um, pieces appeared in the wake of uh, my winning the T.S. Eliot Prize, I sort of spent several weekends in bed crying. So I suppose it, yeah. it did come and it hit me all of a sudden. I, uh, but those questions of audience really weren't in my mind when I was writing the book. Yeah, and uh, I guess as a poet, you don't really expect anyone to pay any attention. So But this makes me think of the mechanisms of self-protection that Catherine was talking about earlier. Um, but what, what is the persona... Uh, what does it enable? Uh, was it Wilde's phrase? Was it um, the truth in masks? Was was that it? Mm. Um, so this this idea that the, the persona, the mask, the Roman theatrical mask, um, might enable you to somehow do things uh, because of that cover that might speak somehow more truthfully. But I I thought also Catherine of um, that figure on the one hand, but then the immense pathos of um, your doty extract at the very beginning, mm. the masked man, and the psychic cost of that division, mm. um, of that performance um, of, of the self in public, um, that, that this, this hidden compartment of the life that mm. can't be revealed, very, very interesting way to begin your, your yeah. book. Um, uh, this question of policing, uh, I, I suppose one thing that came out of all of that, which is perhaps relevant to what we're talking about today, is that some of the reviewers, uh, I guess male white reviewers, um, seem to have a problem with the non-universality of my work, as it were. So there was one particular mm. review that had a, what I thought was, in retrospect, a very interesting moment in it, where he picked me up early in the book. In fact, in the second poem in the book, there's this sort of refrain that goes, something sets us looking for a place, and there's this first-person plural pronoun, um, us, we, that, that resounds through that poem. And his response was, uh, how dare she presume to use that magisterial we from which I feel excluded? And this did actually give me pause. I did genuinely agonise about this for a while. I thought, oh God, I didn't mean to do that. Um, but then I sort of thought, this seems the wrong way round in some way, that um, surely our conversation uh, will now turn round to this question of how viable is that we? Um, and the universal voice, is this uh, fragmentation, this subjectivity, all of these formal devices as a response to the breakdown of that. But um, how do we finally um, figure that process, that act of communication, which is uh, at the heart of poetry or whatever form of writing, that I had sort of hoped in that poem when I thought about it, that the we might be a necessarily... Uh, artificial and fragile and um, constructive thing, sort of like an umbrella that we could all shelter under together temporarily in our differences without effacing them. But um, mm. actually, I think it's striking to me that the most interesting section of Ben Lerner's hatred of poetry is the last movement of it, where he comes round to um, analysing all these 
uh, accounts of the death of poetry in the modern age, that somehow um, contemporary poetry isn't as good as it used to be anymore because it doesn't have this universal we that can speak for a whole society, for American society in that case, and that that's somehow a falling off. And Lerner's point is that the people writing these pieces are always white men mm. who uh, are nostalgizing the days when white men used to be able to speak for Yeah, it's also interesting, um, and it sort of ties up with kind of questions about truth and sort of secrecy and you know, the requirements of honesty in writing. To think about um, this article that uh, Suki Kim wrote about um, her book, I forgot the name of the book now, um, that was this investigative journalism. Um, she went undercover in North Korea and uh, wrote a book about it that got a lot of attention. And uh, she wrote this really interesting article about the responses to, to this writing. And the kind of main gist of a lot of the responses seemed to be a sense of outrage that she had deceived people in this writing. And her diagnosis of this response was that it was partly enabled and framed by the fact that the book had been marketed as memoir rather than investigative reporting or investigative journalism. And she quotes from all these reviews that seemed quite vicious about the fact that she had gone undercover to, and you know, and then put, the argument being that potentially she was putting her students that she was teaching in a school in danger, and you know that the ramifications could be quite serious when this book came out and if people's identities were disclosed, etc. Um, but she makes a very interesting point that that's investigative journalism. That's what investigative journalists have been doing for decades and winning Pulitzer Prizes for. Mm. And she related it to the fact that. Because memoir is seen as such a kind of seller in marketing terms, publishing terms, and because as an Asian American woman, it sort of it fit her prof her imagined their publishers imagined profile of her better to frame this book as a kind of personal journey, even though it sounds like the, the book itself actually was very, in a way, quite I haven't read it, but quite conventional sort of investigative reporting. And I thought that was really interesting, the way in which the, the grounds on which one can be accused of deceit shift massively depending on how books are categorized, depending perhaps on gender, perhaps on race, or you know, your otherness in a particular situation. So she writes about how her Koreanness was very helpful in lots of ways in eliciting material from people, and her gender was also helpful in terms of eliciting information from people who, because she was a youngish woman, would often find herself being talked at and yeah, told, yeah, yeah, told yeah, yeah, and yeah. revealed yes. all kinds of things. Yes. Um, it was a really, it's a really fascinating case, I think, of you know who who gets understood as speaking truthfully or deceitfully based yeah, on the form in which they're writing and on the um, the kind of conventions of the genre in which they seem to be writing. So perhaps you're seen as speaking very truthfully about your history and your family history because it's poetry, whereas in her case, there's a kind of mismatch between the publishing kind of image of the book and the reality of what she was doing. I suppose that question of documentary um, uh, is, is another aspect of the reception of my book that I found interesting and that I didn't quite <coughs> anticipate, that. Um, 
a, a few reviews talked about the book as a sort of um, as if it were a, a missive um, from contemporary China that might give an insight into what it's like to be a woman in 21st century China, uh, like a sort of piece of um, authentic uh, mm -hmm. travel by proxy, uh, tourism by pro cultural tourism by mm -hmm. proxy, um, which is so far from how I conceive the book mm -hmm. that uh, to me it, the book is all about uh, the tenuousness of my connection mm -hmm. with Chineseness, and so that I could somehow uh, be taken as a representative. <laughs> of um, that uh, yeah. category was, was quite strange to me. But can I leap on this word form and ask both of you how that plays out in your work, whether, as you were saying earlier about this synthesising impulse, the need for shaping um, that comes through even it, when writing essay or non-fiction. And in your case, Catherine, I wanted to ask you about white space and your use of the fragment and the snippet and the aphorism and the... Um, engulfing silence around that, which is so striking and unmastered. Mm. Um. <laughs> yeah, I want to just say that I got really fed up with writing novels. I just found that they were diminishing my capacity to speak, and there were so many things I wanted to say. And that in poetry I found a freedom that I didn't have <coughs> in, and that the non-fiction has been an extension of writing poetry, increasingly writing more poetry over the last four or five years. I mean, I just actually sat down and printed out uh, about 100 poems that I'm going to try and shape into a proper collection. And I've been slow about it. I'm not interested in rushing it to market. I don't care about the market in the sense that it was a necessity for me to say something, and I wanted to say it through the, through the medium of poetry. And it felt like I could tell the truth more in that medium than I could through my fiction somehow, that the, that the fiction was by its, and, and, and I don't know, and, and the same thing feels to me to be true about creative non-fiction, um, that I'm telling more of my truth through that voice than I ever did, maybe my first novel, that I've ever done with my fiction for various reasons. And I do think that there is something about the culture too, at this particular precise moment in time, that is perhaps making fiction more difficult for me to read as much as it's difficult it's to write. Because I think, I mean, Nasgard and Rachel Cusker both said similar versions of that are yeah. feeling like sickened with the fictions of fiction. Yeah. And I mean, in Rachel Cusker's case, she wrote memoirs that, I mean, I think they were amazing and that were incredibly controversial and she got totally eviscerated by the British literary press, which will forever be the reason for my holding it in utter contempt. Um, yes. But, but an interesting, and now she's, she's moved to these sort of interesting, slightly hybrid fiction, non-fiction, Books where she's talked very interestingly in an interview about resolving some of those questions of kind of self and persona in this more hybrid form. I think she's very interesting. On that I stuff. sort of also think that it's my job as a writer to be, as Henry James said, someone on whom nothing is lost. And I just think that, that to notice things, to pay attention to things, and then whatever form, and, and, and to, to, to loosen up myself a bit. I mean, I've sort of got caught in the institutionalisation of creative writing. I've been teaching it for a long time, and I feel sometimes a pressure of the orthodoxy of it, and I'm always trying to escape that, I think, in my own practice, which is one of the reasons why I moved to Berlin, probably, so that I could have this physical split between the teaching of writing and the doing of it, and I think it's definitely loosened up something in my But also shifting forms is interesting, yes. isn't it? I mean, I mean the way... It's interesting because you know the way you describe my first book, Unmastered. I now sort of think, oh yes, I did. I did used to write like that because now I'm writing very differently from that book. I'm writing 
in much more kind of conventional linear prose <laughs> than I was in the first book. Um, but I think, I mean, in answer to your question about that, I think that in my case, that form emerged because I was trying to find, I was trying to find a way to explore my ambivalence about lots of the arguments swirling around to do with feminism and sexuality primarily in a form that felt to me that would avoid <coughs> the, the very slippery years of argument, actually. So I wanted it to be an argument an argument in a sense, but an argument that could sort of tolerate unresolvedness and contradiction and, you know, sort of mixed feelings. Um, because I felt that I, I was able to do a certain kind of argumentative writing and sort of persuade myself, you know, when you're writing kind of convincing argumentative prose, and oh, I'm so bright, I'm so clever. <laughs> and then I get to the end and I feel a bit kind of dirty and like I have to go and have a cold shower. And so for me it was a sort of, it was a way of dealing with my ambivalence about, about argument, about the subterfuge and the kind of slates of hands, slights of hands, I don't know how to say that, that can go on in argument. And, and what's been kind of interesting and a bit kind of complicated for me in writing this one is that I've returned to a more linear argumentative prose, but I'm still battling with what I feel very uncomfortable about, which is how I can pull the wool over my own eyes in writing about sort of, you know, contested kind of philosophical, political questions. I can persuade myself of something. And then, you know, it's like in Elizabeth Costello, the Katsia book where she says, the character says, I have beliefs, but I don't believe in them. You know, I get, I get to the end of a sort of ringing paragraph, and then I just think, I don't know, who cares? You know, so, <laughs> I don't know how to deal with that in writing. But I think we should, we should bring that up a bit now, and I want to hear from, um, I want to hear from, from the audience and any questions you have for, for any of us, any observations, the most welcome. Just remind you, we are recording, but we don't know what we're doing quite with the recording, so if there's anything you don't want to potentially be out there. Everyone's too hot. To <laughs> All right. Um, so it's not all writing fiction, though. I, I don't mean to disagree with anything you said tonight. It's really fascinating, but... Um, with, with non-fiction or auto-fiction, it seems to me you need to have this foreknowledge. So if um, Nausicaa got buried for a million years and someone dug it up and read it, how would they, unless it says this was true or I'm saying this was true, how do you know the difference between, for the, so I suppose what I'm saying is for the reader, like Sarah, your, your poem, for writing it and reading it yourself, of course, would always be a very different experience from anyone else. I love the, um, being able to see the jade uh, while you were describing it, that's a really great experience. But for a reader, it's always going to be, in a way, fiction, because they're making up in their, in their mind as they're reading along. And I, even though the rise of um, non-fiction as a style, as a contemporary trend, I, I don't think those issues have kind of gone away. So I just wonder what you all thought about that, really. I think the answer, one of the answers to that is one of the most interesting cases to me of the last 15 years was the James Frey case, mm. Million Little Pieces, mm. where he wrote this ostensible memoir about his drug hell, which was then proved to be 
a complete fiction. And then he has to go on Oprah, because his Oprah is like the priest who forgives him for his, his appalling crime of lying to the reader. And I found that whole episode fascinating because it was, it showed up the idea that we still see the book as a moral object somehow, and it must tell us the truth, so that what it says it is must be what it is. And I found that very interesting, because I agree with you, yes, as a writer, of course, the minute that you start to interpret experience in language, you make it into fiction, because the way that you experience blue is very different from the way that I experience the public, for example. Um, and yet, and yet, and yet, we still think that the book is a moral object and it must tell us the truth. Um, and I think that we work within that paradox somehow all the time. It was extraordinary, that interview on Oprah, where he has to apologize to her. Mm. <laughs> he's committed this appalling thought crime. And David, David Shields in Reality Hunger is very kind of scornful of that whole episode, and and he talks about the way, you know, Random House did that thing where if you if you sent in if you tore off the first page of the copy, I suppose to prove that you had bought a copy, um, and sent it back into them, you would get a refund. You know, there was all the legal yes. stuff about whether people should yes. refund it because, because, and he says. Basically, if you, it was so upsetting to you that you had accidentally read a novel, you could get your $20. Yes! Because I think, you know, yes, everything is fiction. You know, as soon as you write anything down, it's fiction. But I, and, and you know, as you were saying, Sarah, that when you're trying to answer those questions and you're doing the whole, like, oh, it's not really me, and you mustn't mistake me for the, for the narrator. But I also do think that, you know, we read memoir, we read autobiography, <coughs> we read essays with the people who are alive in them. I mean, some of the most amazing writing, you know, James Baldwin, Joan Didion, because those people in <coughs> their lives are fascinating to us. And that it, it does mean something that there's some kind of truth or some kind of lived experience that goes into that. And it, it makes a difference. What that means ethically and politically is very complicated, but... You know, I think it's all fiction, but also there's something at stake about truth in this kind of writing. But don't you think um, questions about what constitutes reality have been with the novel from the very beginning? I'm just thinking of Tom Jones and the scene where his servant Partridge is taken to the theater and he thinks the ghost is real, the ghost in Hamlet. He thinks it's all, he, he just cannot process that it's a play. <laughs> so, I mean, you know. Well, so many of the early novels were packaged as um, found bundles yeah. of letters and found documents, and di yeah, yeah. diaries. Um, With prefaces yeah. explaining where this yeah. journal of a plague year had been found yes. or whatever. I mean, yeah, although, I mean, you don't have that in the tale of Genji. You don't have that in the tale of Genji. Going back to a, an even better kind of pedigree. Well, perhaps that says something about... Um, about uh, the, the origins of the novel at, the, at that particular moment in 18th century European culture, um, uh, that, that comparison. Um, I guess in response to the, the earlier question, um, I, I actually went on some fact-checking trips, uh, a couple of them, in the late stages of writing Leap of Jade, uh, where my mission was to see whether I had remembered things that I hadn't experienced since the age of seven um, accurately or not. Uh, there, this was obviously a difficult enterprise in some cases where uh, the 
skyline of Hong Kong is changing so much every few months that you know many of the sites of my childhood weren't there in the same form. But the result of this was that I discovered I had made many mistakes, and some of them I corrected, and some of them I ended up letting stand. I actually ended up writing a, uh, an essay about this very um, uh, tug within myself because I, I felt that it was truer to my remembered experience of this place that had become a place more and more in my imagination over the decade that I didn't visit it of my childhood, that, that there was something in those errors, those glitches, that was more real. And so I think it's very strange for people who know Hong Kong well or who live there to read my book because they, they will come up short at certain moments mm -hmm. where I get things wrong um, and I wanted there to be that, that yeah. to deal with this thing which is truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> but uh, your question makes me think about um, something we, which we've touched on but not, I guess, addressed head on, which is the role of research in all of this. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, Catherine, you do research extensively. Um, uh, and that feeds into what you were Yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel like I have quite a negative relation to that because, you know, you can do tons and tons of research and then 
and then you, you have to be selective, you know, with telling a particular story. And I mean, I think that it, the same is true if you were writing up the research into a kind of history monograph. You know, it's the same is true. You take you take material and you make something out of it, and there's always going to be distortion and manipulation and you know, little kind of fudging of things. I think in, in any any piece of work that is. You know, if we're if we're honest about about what it is to write and make anything, I think there's always that discomfort about exactly how you use material, um, and I, I think I feel, I feel it quite acutely in in this book because I'm, you know, sort of infused with a lot of the research I've done, but I'm telling a very particular kind of story, and I'm, you know, I, I discarded lots of things that if I included them would make my position very different, but I'm not including them because that's my position. <laughs> you know, which is troubling ethically. I mean, but I think all I think all storytelling, whether it's, you know, novels or whether it's kind of supposed to be more factual, is in it has to involve you have to obscure something to bring something into the light. Yeah. So there's always a price. Um just read an extract of Littell's novelization of the life of that famous Russian writer, Nadia de um, Mandel, whatever her name is. So he has a fictitious interview that he makes with her in 1979, and she talks about um, how small the tape recorder is compared to the one when, she was inter when, when he interviewed her in 1934. So I'm thinking, does this man, is he the only person in the world who doesn't know that tape recorders were not invented in 1934? Or is he doing it deliberately? <laughs> Why has he done this? I mean, it's, it's, this is in three pages that are so brilliantly characterized otherwise. The characters are 100% there. But mm. Why, why, why this? Does it make a difference? Why? Mm. That's my question of the day. Mm. of the erroneous uh, um, tonnage in atonement or um, in his mm -hmm. Ned Bowman um, teleportation accident novel where he has um, characters taking ketamine in 40s Berlin and they mm -hmm. it wasn't invented until some more decades later. It feels like a gesture of that kind of thing. Yeah, right, so I think it's in those cases, I imagine. Yeah. Is question over here? I don't quite know what you mean by safety in that context. I don't know, but not in terms of readers on on mass that it's sold. For example, this American life, it's it's good storytelling, but real mm -hmm. real content, and it's it's almost like okay, well, I'm going to learn something. Mm -hmm. um, mm. 
because I think it's always it's always been around. I mean, I do, I, maybe it is the case that I do I do think the internet has <coughs> had a bad effect on writing, and there's partly just the proliferation of online magazines mean that there are there are more writers getting published, and that might have something to do with the rise, of, you know, possible rise of kind of the personal essay in popular culture. But I think in terms of the history of writing. I mean, I mean, I think a really in sort of pivotal moment was the new journalism in the 60s and 70s, and that I think you know it has still massive effect on nonfiction that's being written now. And and I and I think there's kind of interesting points of comparison in terms of you know what you were saying about you know the kind of post-truth era that we're in. But I think that it's a longer trend. You know, when you think about the the context that was giving rise to people like you know Norman Mailer and Truman Capote and Tom Wolfe. And then the context that was also giving rise to, um, oh, I always forget his name, O.J. Simpson, that, I don't know if you saw that amazing documentary yeah, 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 yeah. about um, his trial that, you know, could, could almost be transposed onto now in terms of the Trump phenomenon and the sort of, the, the kind of almost willful denial of evidence in the face of a story related to celebrity and glamour and, and, and wish fulfillment that, that, that people are happy to make that sacrifice, you know, happy to, to go with a story that makes them feel better rather than the facts that are absolutely staring them in the face. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I sort of see the, I mean, I think, you know, the post war period is a, there, there is an interesting story to tell about the rise of non fiction kind of politically and culturally, but I think it's longer than just this moment, and I think all those moments are kind but of... But I do think linked. there is something at the moment in fiction where the author is suddenly becoming the character. So in ben, the auto-fiction, Ben Lerner, Rachel Krasnick, Sheila Hetty, I mean, in Asgard even, where, where, and, 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 and Damon Galga, and this has happened in the last 10 years, where, I mean, it's always been around, but there's, there's definitely a, a moment yeah. where there's a certain strand of literary fiction which is struggling with mm, guts, yeah. and it's to do with the now, I think. Yeah. It really is to do with this making up characters is difficult, so I'll make myself into a persona mm. who carries the story. And as, as we were um, edging towards in our sort of pre-event chat, I wonder if it's also related to anxieties around um, cultural appropriation yes. and speaking mm. um, for as others of one stripe or another. This is a question that I'm very, very interested in um, myself, and I, I suppose it, it somewhat relates to this question of research and writing what you know and speaking as yourself. I think Ben Lerner is very interesting on this. Uh, at the beginning of 10.04, he has that um, segue into the perspective of the salt-massaged baby octopus, doesn't he, yeah. polarised light, which um, seems like a, a sort of almost parodic nod to the idea of inhabit a negative <coughs> capability that lets you um, inhabit minds so other than your own it, at the threshold of the mind <coughs> that, that is so self-conscious about not uh, stepping outside of the author's consciousness. Um, Catherine and I were at an event in London, was it last year, where um, Lerner was reading from that novel, and he, in response to a question from the audience, described how he felt like it was a sort of principled position, almost, to write a novel in the voice of a Jewish Brooklynite, quite educated, uh, white male character, rather than 
writing a novel in the voice of a sub-Saharan African female character, um, which I, I thought was an interesting um, stance to, to adopt, mm -hmm. um, but also an interesting polarity to draw. Yeah, it's interesting that he put it in those very stark terms, of sort of like the version of himself and the version that's as far away from himself as you could sort of imagine. Yes, you had your hand up is for that, a while. Is that fine? Yeah, just. Um, well, I was just interested in what you were speaking about just then about um, post-facts era and post-truth era, and whether there's some um, correlation that could be drawn with the fact that Trump himself is the product of reality TV, which I'm sure is not like an original um, thing that I've thought of, but I think maybe he's just having narratives shaped around him in some way, like the way you're describing maybe Chelsea, like obviously those characters aren't necessarily the eye voice in that scenario. Mm -hmm. But they're having a perspective put on them, and maybe there's some correlation to be drawn there. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very. The, the the question of how information is now tailored to us. You know, there is no such thing as a kind of neutral Google search. That's that's quite profound. At least, in, like epistemologically, that's quite a profound change. And I suppose, you know, I mean, I feel that. Yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical about some, some of the kind of everything is new and everything is very changing, but I, but I, do, I do think that that does have an impact on how, you know, I mean, it's, it's related to the question of the kind of universal we, isn't it, and the universal perspective from which one can or cannot write a book of poems or um, investigative reporting or whatever, that, you know, there's, there is no, there's no neutral kind of position, and perhaps that is even more troubling me in the era of kind of, you know, even that you can't switch on a TV and just see what you want to be, you're searching for what you want, like we're, we're all kind of funneled much more, which is interesting and troubling. We should leave it there. Thanks so much for coming, all of you, and for your questions, and thanks very much to Julia Bell and to Sarah Howe for Oh, it hasn't been. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm just pulling it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks.